Hello everyone and welcome to our digital campus for this evening. I'm so glad that you've taken the time out of your day to come and be with us. Let's pray before we begin. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for being so attentive to us. You listen to our praises, our prayers, and our cries. You're always there for us and I thank you for that. Be with us this evening and guide us as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight, I'm turning to the scriptures to answer the question, why one God? This week, we're having why questions. And we heard from Sister Regina on Tuesday for the reasons why we will hear biblical concepts repeated. And my message is a perfect example of this, since I'm sure many of you have heard this many times before. I look at this as a pure delight to consider again the very foundation upon which my beliefs and my life are built. So let's see what the Bible has to say about this very important topic. I love reading in the Old Testament how God said that he is the only God, that he is one, and that there is no other. And I'm particularly drawn to the passages in Deuteronomy and Isaiah. They ignite a fire in my soul. But before I go there, I'd like to preface that with John 4.24, just a, a detail about God. John 4.24 says, For God is a spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's essential to keep this fact that God is a spirit in mind as we read these scriptures. So now let's go on to Deuteronomy and Isaiah. And these are very familiar passages, but hearing them all together just is very exciting to me. Deuteronomy 6.4. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And Isaiah 44.6. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord of heaven's armies. I am the first and the last. There is no other God. Isaiah 44, 8 says, You are my witnesses. Is there any other God? No, there is no other rock, not one. And Isaiah 45, 5 says, I am the Lord. There is no other God. Isaiah 45, 6, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I think we're getting the point. Isaiah 45, 14, this is what the Lord says. God is with you, and he is the only God. There is no other. And Isaiah 45, 18, I am the Lord, he says, and there is no other. I think he's making a point. 
Isaiah 48:17. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God, who teaches you what is good for you, who leads you along the paths you should follow. And then in the New Testament, Romans 3:30, there is only one God. And he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Not only are there many, many scriptures stating that there is only one God, there are many scriptures saying that this one God is the only Savior. So let's look at some of those. Isaiah 43, 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Isaiah 43, 10 and 11. But you are my witnesses, O Israel, says the Lord. You are my servant. You have been chosen to know me, believe in me, and understand that I alone am God. There is no other God. There never has been, and there never will be. Yes, I, yes, I am the Lord, and there is no other Savior. Again, it's making a point. Isaiah 45, 21 and 22. For there is no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none but me. Let all the world look to me for salvation. For I am God, there is no other. In Isaiah 49, 26, all the world will know that I, the Lord, am your savior and your redeemer, the mighty one of Israel. In Isaiah 60, 16, you will know at last that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Israel. These scriptures are repeating over and over that there is one God and he is the only Savior. I find it very interesting that in the account of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter eight, the eunuch had been reading aloud from Isaiah as he rode along in his carriage. There's something about reading aloud. And one cannot read Isaiah without reading over and over that there is one God and he is the only savior. So let's go to Acts chapter eight and consider what happened there. Persecution had scattered the believers and Philip was in Samaria preaching about the Messiah. Many were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and received the Holy Spirit. But in the midst of all this revival, God sends Philip somewhere else. So in Acts chapter eight, verses 26 to 35, as for Philip, as an angel of the Lord said to him, go south down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the Candake, the queen of Ethiopia. 
The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship and he was now returning. Seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. The Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and walk alongside the carriage. Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, do you understand what you are reading? And the man replied, how can I unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. The passage of scripture he was reading was this, and this is from Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? So beginning with this same scripture from Isaiah, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. Now, the eunuch had been reading about one God who is the only Savior, and he needed someone to explain the passage he had been reading. So what is the connection? How could Philip preach Jesus beginning in Isaiah? So let's look at the account of Jesus' birth and who he is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her fiance, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet, Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Jesus, that means Jehovah Savior. God is with us. The one God of the Old Testament is now with us. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, for God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So now we're hearing what's going on in the New, the New Testament. Colossians 2.9, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. And Colossians 1.15, Christ is the visible image 
of the invisible God. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. You must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross, though he was God. John, and one of my favorites again, is the book of John at the beginning. John 1, verse 1 and verse 14. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we're talking about God here. So the Word, or God, became human and made his home among us. This one and only God, who here is referred to as the Word, became human and dwelled on the earth. Okay, we all know that's Jesus. So why was this necessary? What was the point? Hebrews 9.22 says, In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. From the very beginning, blood was shed to cover sin. From the very first sin of Adam and Eve listed in Genesis, this was true. They tried to cover their sins with leaves, which of course did not last for long. God made coats of skins for them. That caused shedding of blood. And this practice continued through the Old Testament. But a new covenant was made through the shedding of Jesus' blood that made a permanent sacrifice for sin. Colossians 1.18 and 20 says, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So God lived in Jesus Christ, and he reconciled everything through his death on the cross. And we know from John 4, 24, that God is a spirit. It was that Holy Spirit that overshadowed Mary. That spirit is Jesus's father. Look at John 14, 16 through 18 and 26. And this is Jesus speaking. And I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. 
but you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. No, I, Jesus, who's speaking, will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus is coming to us. But when the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. So Jesus is speaking here about the Advocate. King James says the Comforter, who Jesus identifies as the Holy Spirit. He also tells them, I will come to you. Jesus himself comes to us as the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. So we see in the Old Testament, there is one and only one God who is the only Savior. Then we see, beginning in Matthew, the fulfillment of this Savior being born as a baby, Jesus, who is the visible image of the invisible God. This one and only God, who is a spirit, became flesh, became one of us. He shed his blood and is our savior. He resurrected from the grave, walked among humans, and then ascended into heaven so that he could return as the Holy Spirit to live in us. So, why one God? The scriptures verify over and over that there is one God and he is Jesus, our Savior. So like the Ethiopian eunuch, we can begin in the Old Testament and end up in the New Testament finding the truth about who our God is and what he requires of each person. He is the Father, he is the Son, he is the Holy Spirit, and he is one. And if you have any doubt or are unsure about who God is, I'd like to make a suggestion. You have a Bible and you have two knees and you have a God in heaven who loves you so very much. Pray to that God about all of this and allow God to lead you. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, You've given us your word as an, an instruction manual for our lives here on this earth. Lord, anoint our minds to see your plan on its pages as we read and pray and seek to know you more perfectly. You have promised to lead and guide us into all truth, and we claim that promise. Show us the way, Lord, day by day, moment by moment. Allow us to serve you in spirit, and in truth, in Jesus' name. And thank you so much for joining us this evening. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. Good night.